Well, I think it's still kind of remarkable that when I talk to Christians today, even Reformed Christians, um, I'm still sort of surprised how many uh, Reformed Christians are completely unaware of who Herman Bavink is. Um, even for those that do know about Herman Bavink, even fewer are actually reading Bavink and his work. And I think that's kind of surprising for a number of reasons. I think Bavink is so important, so so incredibly foundational for uh, Reformed theology today that we really need to start promoting Bavink more, reading Bavink more in our in our churches. And I think pastors need to do a better job of actually putting Bavink in the hands of their people. Now, I think for our uh, subject today, as we're going to think, we're going to talk here about Bavink and what. Uh, modern theology looks like, or actually doing theology for today, something that I've been really on. I think that there's a need right now, perhaps more than ever, for a new theological voice in the theological wilderness that we're in. Um, and I think the way that I would explain that, of course, is that I, what we're seeing right now in evangelicalism and even in Calvinist circles is something of a theological free for all. Kind of seems like everything is up for grabs. The um, uh, old theological lines are kind of up for debate once again. And in the Reformed world, I think many of those lines are being drawn along the doctrine of eschatology, for example, uh, things that have to do with culture, Christ and culture, and how that intersection between the church and politics how that really goes today? How do you interpret that today? How do you um, how do you speak to the culture today from a Christian perspective? And I, I think there's you know there's an impression I think by some of the Calvinist premillennialist people that are calling for the abandonment of culture altogether, and yet there are others calling for Christian reconstructionism, theonomists and postmillennialists and such calling for us to take dominion of the culture as if as if something like that uh, was even possible uh, to begin with. Uh, and then there are the rest of us who identify with a pilgrim ethic that neither believes in the abandonment of culture, let's say, wholesale, so to speak, um, but it also doesn't fantasize about dominion theology in a retro, retrograde sort of theological fashion, going backwards, let's say, to a theocratic understanding of Christianity. And we need a new theological uh, uh, paradigm. And I think that somebody that has given us that in many ways is Herman Bavink. And I think this is why Bavink has to be listened to very, very closely today, and why Christians today and Calvinists today have to really interact with the theology of Bavink. Now, when we think about Bavink, obviously he is a classic Dutch theologian who taught theology, professor of theology at the Free University of Amsterdam. And, you know, uh, Bavink, who was born in 1850s, 1854, died in 1921, of course, was a contemporary there in Amsterdam, uh, a contemporary of the famous a Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who uh, who went on to be, left the university, uh, the Free University of Amsterdam, and left to be the prime minister of Holland. Now, when that happened, um, 
Uh, Herman Bavink took the chair of theology there uh, at the Free University, and many believed that 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 Bavink would always sort of live in the shadow of Kuiper. And as Carlton Wen has pointed out in his introduction to one of Bavink's books, the book we're going to talk about today, The Wonderful Works of God, uh, Carlton Wen has pointed out, in fact, that that was wrong. Uh, that people thought that Bavink would live in the shadow of Kuiper, but in fact, once people understood Herman Bavink for the theological genius that he was, and just the the incredible, comprehensive grasp uh, that uh, Bavink had on theology, uh, nobody recognized at that point, or maybe everybody recognized at that point, that Bavink, in fact, was not going to be playing second fiddle to Abraham Kuyper. Bavink would emerge as his own man and as, as his own theologian. This is what Carlton Wynne had to say in the introduction of the wonderful works of God. He said, Bavink's breathtaking thesis that God's historical self-revelation in nature and in Scripture leads people through Christ to the triune God and therein displays his eminent glory through the organic interconnectedness of all things, addresses the most vexing questions of life, underpins the integrity of every field of human inquiry, and fulfills the deepest longings of the human heart. Now, when I read that, I thought, you know, having spent hours of personal study in the Reformed Dogmatics, what Herman Bavink is mostly known for is the four volumes of the Reformed Dogmatics that he wrote. And in those systematic theology textbooks, Herman Bavink is in fact exactly what Carlton Wen is talking about here. He is absolutely uh, uh, completely uh, uh, committed to the historical self-revelation of the triune God and of course, what he means by that is that God, uh, if he is to be known, he will be known through revelation. And therefore, for Bavink, he has this revelatory epistemology, a revelatory worldview uh, that rejects, of course, modern-day liberalism and any of those sorts of ideas of interacting with God you know, in some sort of existential fashion— or something of a modernist conception uh, relating to the doctrine of revelation. No, for Bavink, he believes, absolutely believes, that it is the glory of the triune God that is revealed in the Word of God. And uh, as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that you are impressed about when you're reading Bavink's theology, is you are immediately impressed with the, with the notion that Bavink is grounding everything in the Word of God. Of God, that's actually one of the best parts of Bavink's uh, of his theology. For Bavink, everything comes from Scripture. In fact, that's one of the hallmarks of his Reformed dogmatics. It is saturated in the Bible. Some would call it proof texting, but as I've looked at the proof texts that Bavink gives, uh, interspersed throughout his works. Uh, he is extremely careful and cautious how he uses the Bible to prove the theology, to prove the arguments he is seeking to make. 
And so as we think about the nature of Bavink's work, I think we need to understand that the Reform Dogmatics uh, stands out as a very unique uh, set, four volumes of systematic theology that are not tip- not very typical among what systematic theology books look like today, the way that they're formulated. It's not that he has a foreign structure, he 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 pretty much has a classic structure to his to his systematic theology uh but it's it, it it's distinct and one of the reasons why is because while other systematic theologies of the past let's say prior to the 20th century prior to the 19th century you go back to turretin and even when you interact with charles hodge what you notice about a lot of these theologians of the past is that they're very they're kind of time-bound, so they're kind of dated in that way. Even if you're thinking about B.B. Warfield, many of the controversies he's interacting with, of course, are going to be interacting with things that are going on during his day. And that's no fault of his, but when we think about Herman Bavink, I think that's one of those things that stand out to me the most about Bavink's work, is that Bavink is, yes, he's speaking to the issues of his time, but there is a timeless character to the work of Herman Bavink. And I think one of the things that makes uh, Bavink's work so timeless is that he is sensitive to a whole host of things. He is sensitive to historical theology. He is always thinking about historical theology. He's always thinking about how this doctrine develops throughout the development of Christian thought. And that goes throughout the annals of Christian history. He's also scripturally saturated, as I said. His, his, um, his writings are just saturated in the Bible, which makes it very unique in that way. He's also extremely sensitive to biblical theology, which basically means that he's not, you know, he's not just trying to isolate a doctrine and load it up with Bible verses, but he in a unique way, Herman Bavink kind of moves in and out of the concerns of biblical theology and back into the concerns of systematic theology. One of those things is sensitive to the to the history of redemption, and the other one tends not to be. So in other words, when you're studying the doctrine of man, um, when you look at a typical systematic theology, they're often not concerned with the historical development of the Bible. But for Herman Bavink, it seems that he's constantly sensitive to the, to the issues of biblical theology. So in that way, he's very Vossian. And of course, Voss, Bavink were contemporaries. And so it's one of these Dutch theologians that really uh, uh, formulates his theological thought in a very unique way. Also, there's a primacy given to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in his theology. And so the Holy Spirit makes his way into his systematic theology in an unconventional way. He grounds, uh, he grounds the spirit as the foundation for much of his theology concerning soteriology. That typically doesn't happen in a systematic theology book. You typically have the doctrine of God, the Trinity, and there you're going to have the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Spirit, and then later on you're going to deal with soteriology as a separate discipline or as a, a separate department or, or compartment or category within that textbook. Not for Bavink. For Bavink, 
He wants to subordinate the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. He wants to subordinate that beneath the doctrine of the Spirit. Very unique, and I think he does a great job of doing that. And then last of all, what we're going to really talk about today, what I really want to focus on today, is I want to focus on the visionary uh, kind of writing style of Bavink and what he calls for in the wonderful works of God when he stresses that what we need really is a theology for today. Um, that he he really has this visionary mode of writing. Um, he really is concerned that we do not simply direct people, particularly the youth in the church, the young rising generations of the church, that we don't just direct them back, let's say, to the Puritans or to older uh, writers. Uh, for example, as, as, as Bavink is developing this, uh, he uses the example of Wilhelmus Brekel. Now, Wilhelmus Brekel has written uh, his own volumes of theology, um, the, Christian's, the Christian's Reasonable Service, and it's a wonderful work. Um, uh, I've spent some time interacting with that, and it's very puritanical. <laughs> uh, it's very useful, very practical, but again, to, to be sensitive to what Bavink is trying to say, it is confined, and it is dated, and it is a bit arcane for what the modern reader expects when they're trying to apply it to their time, their context, their situation today. And I think that is the strength of Bavink, is that in some sense, he is a prophetic reformer. He wants an up-to-date theology. He wants theology for today. And so I know that that would be a point of controversy for some, but again, we're, talking, we're not talking here about a theologian who is saying to abandon the past, of course, uh, Bavink is acknowledged for his comprehensive grasp of historical theology and his emphasis on the importance of church history and understanding the origin of ideas. But for Bavink, he was wide awake to the contemporary situation of not only his time, but even looking ahead. And I think that's what makes me um, so attracted to Bavink's work is because he's constantly pushing us forward. Uh, for somebody that has been talking a lot about the new apologetics and a new apologetic emphasis, and somebody that was already a big fan of Herman Bavink, um, this prophetic emphasis of his, uh, if I can use that word, <laughs> right? But this only endears the work of Bavink to my mind, to my heart, even more so now than ever uh, in this uh, way that, in, in the way that, um, uh, the, that he articulates this burden of his. Now, in the foreword of The Wonderful Works of God, Bavink points out uh, that there are several causes for what he calls the sorry state of affairs, uh, that's what he calls it, for true religion or Christianity in his day. And these points are another reason why I would identify Hermann Bavink as a prophetic reformer of sorts because uh, the things that he was uh, pointing out in his day quite possibly applies to us still, maybe even more so uh, with the acceleration of an all-encompassing technological way of living, okay? But he points out several things 
um, uh, of why it is that religion needs this sort of forward-thinking theological proposal, because in his mind, religion and the ebb and flow of true religion was at an all-time low, and there was all sorts of con- uh, reasons for concerns. Now, obviously, the uh, uh, you know at the turn of the 20th century, going from the 19th to the 20th century, of course, I mean, the Reformed world at that time is just reeling with German higher criticism and with liberalism of every stripe. And so here you have Bavink looking out into the landscape of theology and understanding that there there are rising challenges, the challenges of liberalism and then the challenges of modernism and those kinds of things, the scientism that is coming on the horizon and uh, the the doctrine of evolution or the 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 the, the um you know, the, the proposal of evolution and what that means for the church and how the church is going to combat these things and face those challenges. Now, one of the things that he points out is that modern Christians were too busy. He actually points out that in his time, what he saw is that there was such a preoccupation with your job, with vocation, with employment, with profession, and very little time left over at the end of the day to desire to do anything along the lines of developing theology, studying theology, and the knowledge of God. And this is what I mean by the fact that, you know, writing over a century ago, you know, Bavink still speaks directly to us now, 100 years later, um, that, you know, remind us that if he thought he was living in a fast-paced world, if he was pointing out the fast-paced nature of society back then, (laughs) what would he think about today? Uh, as we today are inundated with all sorts of social demands, whether we're thinking about our domestic lives in the family, how people are constantly on the move. And, you know, think about all of the demands that are placed on kids today and the sports and activities that they're all involved. I mean, the, the term soccer mom was invented for a reason, you know, um, and not that that's bad, but as it relates to time constraint, we very much, in mo- in our modern context, we find ourselves remarkably busy today, so much so that we hardly have any time left over. Endless hours are spent at work, even if you work at home. I mean, think about it. Our mobile devices have made it even possible for us to be not just more connected, of course, but it just means that we take our work with us wherever we go. We could be sitting at a restaurant, you know, having dinner with someone and people don't even know there you are on your phone working at work, clocked in, still clocked in, doing whatever it is that you do for work. It's not to say that the Bible doesn't have a biblical perspective, a proper work ethic or something like that, and that it's good to work hard, but we're talking about the emphasis here of the consumption of our time and 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 Bavink here noticing that as this modern era is, is, is developing, as the Industrial Revolution is in full swing, he is seeing Christians being preoccupied and their time being swept away. Add to this, um, you know, this idea of losing time or having time to develop theology, to study the Word of God, to study the Scriptures, to develop religion— uh, think about all of the demands that social media puts on you. If some people are 
uh, today, think about it. I mean, we, we, we think about how many people now are enslaved to social media, to their identity on social media, that they look at their Facebook page or their other social media pages and that they're conscious, they're self-conscious about their presence. I mean, they look at what's going on on their social media posts. They look at this social media thing dozens of times a day, if not hundreds of times a day. And now that we are connected to everything and to everyone, we are constantly checking in on people and places and situation and news that, you know, a generation or two before, those things were too distant, too removed for us to even be concerned with. Technology has changed all of that, of course. And I think we would do well to listen to Bavink here and just at least to recognize that. And um, I think one would only wonder what Bavink would think about the influence of technology on the church and the Christian life today for good and for bad. But he also stresses this idea of not just the fact that we're too busy, but he says that we're also too rich. And I think what he means by this is that we have too much stuff, including too much information. Beginning with stuff, though, I mean, we can think of our own materialistic age in which we live. We are, in fact, inundated with stuff. I mean, here in the holiday season, we know that more than at any other time. And we live in a world, of course, that is constantly advertising stuff to us, pressuring us, shaping us, and molding us to conform to a materialistic worldview where going without becomes a negative social status in our culture. And how does this all square with the biblical teaching on self-denial and biblical contentment? I think that's something that we all have to be honest about. And I think there's introspection to be had there from all of us in the interest of biblical piety. But this is something that Bavink was very concerned with in his time. Now, speaking of status, maybe something that even more so, I guess, unique to our age than to Bavink is that now we're living in the age of status because we live in the age of self and self-ism. Our status is now determined by what's happening on social media, of course, our presence on social media, our following on social media, the impact that social media has and the impact that we have on social media, our fashion, our likability factor. It's just remarkable. Uh, Obviously, there's nothing new there in the sense that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. But now it's not just about keeping up with fashion and trends, but maintaining a profile where people can see that you're keeping up with fashion and culture. Just think of the horrors of TikTok, for example. And of course, young people, not exclusively, but I think it's safe to point out, young people particularly are susceptible to the pressures that social media and our culture suggest to them day and night. And so for the, for, um, in terms of all of these factors, uh, the other thing is, is that Bavink also points out that we are too consumed by our culture. It's just really interesting when you think that he was writing over 100 years ago and pointing some of these things out. Now, I want to read uh, directly from uh, the foreword that he wrote to the wonderful works of God here in uh, for Bavink, he has something to say about media consumption 
that I think is just really important because we obviously consume media on a digital platform, but back then when it was still on a written platform, a physical newspaper, he wrote about it. And he said the reading of daily and weekly newspapers, of magazines and brochures, devours every blink, I guess he's saying blink, of an eye. Uh, There's a lack of desire and opportunity for the investigation of Scripture in the study of all theological works. Now think about it. If we think that people were being consumed by newspapers and magazines in Bavink's day, Think about the inordinate amount of time we all spend surfing the internet, reading the end, the endless headlines, uh, talk about devouring every blink of the eye. <laughs> Many today can't take their eyes off their phone at all, not even for a second. Um, obviously, research today suggests that basically or almost 50% of Americans today confess that they are totally addicted to their phones. And the average person in America today checks their phone at least 350 times a day. I mean, that is a staggering statistic and something that we need to be um, made aware of because it is shaping us. It is absolutely affecting us. Technology is absolutely having an effect upon us, whether we're self-conscious of it or not, whether we want to recognize it, whether we want to reckon with it or not, whether we want to read those kinds of statistics or care. But we should know anytime there's anything going on in culture and the development of culture and the way that culture is evolving, how it's affecting us. What effect is it having upon our thinking, our time, our behavior, our families, our lives, our nation? our society as a whole, I think that's something we need to be very concerned with. And as a matter of fact, this all leads Bavink to say that the last thing was that for him, we're also too modern. We're not just, it's not just an issue for Bavink that we are too busy, we're consumed with our vocations, we're consumed with our hobbies or whatever it may be, and that we're too rich, we're too materialistic, we have too much stuff, we're inundated with our things, and we care far too much about our material possessions, but also that we're consumed by, by the, 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 the information that we're getting, we're consumed in our, in our time. He says, basically, that the world now requires more of our time and energy by the day, he says, by the day. We are required by this world to devote our time to other things other than the development, the study, and the, and the, and, and the uh, contemplation of Scripture and of the knowledge of God. And so, therefore, Herman Bovink says that we are also too modern. He, he, he's, he's talking about the fact that we need to be careful not to forget the works of the past. It's remarkable here because, of course, Bovink is a, like I said from the outset, he he is calling for a forward-thinking theology. He wants theology for today. But that doesn't mean that Bavink is not sensitive to the theologians of the past. He is. He laments the fact that we no longer have the capacity to read the older works. We've become too modern. He also expresses the need to address uh, the needs of this age and this era, but... He says that we need to be sensitive to the wisdom of the past. He recognizes that we no longer, um, you know, we we no longer really 
feel the weightiness of the things that previous generations did. As a matter of fact, he says that what was the weightiest issues of the, of the men of the past, we don't even believe they are significant anymore. He says this, and let me quote him directly. He says, the issues that men of the past consider to be the weightiest have wholly and mostly lost their significance for us. And I think at this stage, I, I, I have to say that in studying older theologians for years now, and when you read, I mean, going all the way back to the to the four, to not just our Reformed forefathers, but going back to the patristic fathers and into the scholastic period, you read, especially as I've been studying the doctrine of God and the Trinity, it is remarkable to see how these men in times past were consumed with the theological precision on doctrines like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, of course, doctrines like the hypostatic union of Christ, and how important that was to them, whereas today, as Bavink says, these things have lost their significance for us. And today, we care more about having a catchy book, a catchy title, attractive covers, than really pouring our souls over these things. Listen, the men of the past not only broke their bodies and pour, poured their souls over the study of divine things, but they did so for the sake of the preservation of the purity of Christian orthodoxy. And what Bavink is simply saying is that we cannot forget the thinkers of the past. And there are just some, these, you know, those are just some of the reasons why Bavink kind of gives us this, you know, this, this, this sort of burden that true religion is waning in the land. Um, and I think that's what made a Bavink's work so attractive to me in the wonderful works of God is he understands that true religion is something that you have to maintain, you have to cultivate it. And as we think about the rising generations, it's something that we need to be prepared to answer for their sake. Um, you know, for Herman Bavink, it's also remarkable to note that his systematic theology, his Reformed dogmatics, the wonderful works of God, everything he did in theology was apologetically driven. I, I don't think that's an overstatement. For Bavink, he always wanted to combat those corrosive effects of, of what we talked about and what he lists out in the, the, um, the preface to the wonderful works of God there, being too busy, being too materialistic, these kinds of things. Uh, but he also uh, approaches everything with an apologetical mind. He also speaks to theology in a way that he wants to address foundational issues of things that will really spell trouble for the church ahead. And I think that's why I think Herman Bavink is such a remarkable, uh, pioneering, prophetic reformer of sorts, because he's always constantly looking at how culture is infiltrating the church and how culture and what's going on in the world is affecting the church today. And so, Carlton Wen points out the same thing, I think, when he talks about Bavink. This is Carlton Wen who did the introduction to this newly released version of what used to be called the, reason, uh, um, uh, the re A Reasonable Faith. Now it is called The Wonderful Works of God. 
But Carlton Wynn, I think he points out that Bavink writes in a timeless way. And the, even though he wrote 100 years ago, 100 years later, here we are still talking about Bavink in a very, very relevant way so that he remains a relevant guide, a modern guide for formulating the Christian worldview and combating the ebb and flow of our culture and what that means for us today in the church. This is what he says. He says, though we live a century after Herman Bavink, the obstacles to doctrinal health that he confronted information overload that saps spiritual vitality, a waning interest in the knowledge of God, and increasing disregard for godliness still face us today. Some of these obstacles have grown to mammoth proportions in our digital age, consumed as it is with both self-expression and self-pity. That's Carlton Wynn. And I think that Carlton Wynn is absolutely right when he zeroes in on this issue of selfism, consisting both of what he calls self-expression and self-pity. Now, self-expression, I think we can um, we can all sort of uh, re- relate with that, or at least we all we understand that in terms of the culture in which we live in today. Everybody is obsessed with expressing yourself, expressing yourself through entertainment, music, fashion, art, whatever. But self-pity is also a very, very important issue that Carlton Wen is identifying with. And what he's saying is that Bavink is a very important thinker when it comes to addressing a culture that is obsessed, obsessed with self-pity obsessed with self-loathing and with looking at yourself as a victim and instead of seeing yourself in the biblical light of what it means to be created in the image of God. Now, selfism uh, is the spirit of the age. I think we need to be honest about that. Uh, we can call it autonomy, we can call it technocracy, we can call it pluralism, paganism, hedonism, all the threats that we see on the horizon. But when we think about the West in particular, selfism is something that really does, um, I mean, it really is the air that we breathe culturally. And many people have written on this. Um, probably the best book you can get on this subject would have to be The Triumph of the Therapeutic by Philip Reef, who goes into great detail of how radically self-centered, narcissistic, and self-therapeutic we have become um, in in our culture. And it really is quite pagan. Um, Following up on the triumph of the therapeutic is the recent book that was written by by, uh, Carl Truman, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where there He mainly focuses on things like sexuality and what's going on today with gender issues and stuff like that. But all of those things are just a symptom of a a culture that is absolutely committed to selfism. And so when Carlton Wentz says, Bavink will help us in this area of self-expression and self-pity, the issues that are going on in our culture, I think we need to listen to him very, very much here. And of course... Speaking about the West in particular, look, we can talk about this at a global level, but we also have to remember that in in other countries, let's say China, communist, you know, uh, 
communism in other places, North Korea, whatever, dictatorships, even places like Russia, right? Um, uh, a lot of places will differ in terms of how does selfism work out in a place like China? Well, in a communist country, for example, people really lose their identity for the state. Uh, so, so there, the issues there will be quite different. But when we really think about the West, when we focus in on the American culture that we live in here, selfism really rises, uh, really lives up to its name. It lives up to its name because everything from hedonism to self-loathing, we have a total uh, sort of, you know, uh, dependency on expressing ourselves. And what has happened is that we have turned the notion of self-expression into human rights and that a person is not really being given proper human rights proper, um, you know, they're not being really treated in a humane way unless they are allowed to express themselves in whatever way they feel. And this is what is going on with the LGBTQ issue. This is what is going on in gender fluidity and self-identifying. This is also what's going on with the whole notion of identity politics. It is it is a balance, isn't it, between self-expression and self-pity. I mean, identity politics is all about self-pity. We marginalize people on the basis of a construction of an identity, a, po- a political identity that we make in our own eyes, in our own image, and then we define those that come against that sort of that self, uh, that self-pity, that ideal, and whether we call it racism or oppression or whatever. And so that in our culture, these two seemingly polar opposite ideas of selfism find their expression in a culture obsessed with both hypersexualization and with oppressive identity politics. Now, finally, Carlton Wynn reminds us that Bavink uh, provides the church with a much needed theology, specifically dealing with teleology, a doctrine of purpose, we could say eschatology, closely related, eschatology, reformed Trinitarianism, and reformed federalism. This is what Carlton Wynn said. He says, the wonderful works of God is medicine for those suffering from such spiritual malaise as from the the phonetic pace of life. It redirects our ways outward and upward to God in all of his self-revealed glory. In these ways and more, This 20th century work speaks powerfully to 21st century Christians. Now, what is so important about what Carlton Wynn says there in terms of his characterization of the wonderful works of God is that in the direction in which which Bavink directs our, our hearts, directing our ways outward and upward. Now, of course, that's always going to be the Christian answer. So when we think about the apologetic approach of Van Til, when we think about modern-day apologetics, when we think about you know facing the modern challenge of technology and this whole digital life that's being constructed around us, never forget that the answer will always be the creator-creature distinction and relation. 
Obviously, this is something I have repeated on the show over and over again because it is what is always at the root. It's always that foundational issue that is attacked either by pagan religion or attacked by secularism or something else. And Carlton, when Carlton Wynn speaks of God's revealed glory, now, uh, knowing who Carlton Wynn is and knowing his contributions to the ministry of the Reform Forum, for example, I know that his, that not only his knowledge of Bavink, but how Bavink informs uh, the foundations of a later theologian, mainly the apologist Cornelius Van Til, and so kind of connecting Bavink and Van Til together, I can't help but think in terms of God's immutability and the rejection of all forms of mutualism, correlativism, as foundational to reform thought. Now, that's absolutely important. This kind of comes full circle with something I said at the outset, that today we're facing a culture in which even in Reformed Calvinist circles, theology is kind of up for grabs. I mean, you see this all over the place. Uh, you know, you see this in the way that um, Christians are calling now for uh, proposals of hyper-relational theology, whether through the condescension of Christ, so that that condescension takes, uh, uh, essentially is taken up into the being of God, changing God, or the elevation of man, that man is elevated And that leads to man directly having a direct appropriation of the essence of God. Both of those paths lead to the same mutualist error. And Bavink retains the proper doctrine of God in this respect, and he paves the way for other similar thoughts by both Voss, Van Til, and many others who preserve a biblical doctrine of God's immutability against all forms of pagan religion, secular conceptions of divine mutability, or what is often called mutualism or correlativism, where man and God are sort of in this codependent relationship, where man where God is just as much dependent on man as man is dependent on God, which is complete heresy, and it reduces God to a mutable idol, and therefore it has to be completely rejected. Now, I would just say, take the wonderful works of God. Everybody, take this book, read it. I've just jotted down a few talking points today to share with you some reasons why I think Bavink is a seminal theologian. I think that Bavink is seminal for issues on the doctrine of God, as well as Reformed Covenant theology, the image of God in man, God's self-revelation, biblical theology, and eschatology that are to be found in his works. And these aspects of Christian thought, I believe, will prove essential for equipping the church, for equipping equipping young people. Bavink said this, that what he saw was young men and women, quote, young men and women who are being acquainted with the frequent challenges that the Christian religion is exposed to in the present time. See, that's the thing is he's always coming back to what is going on with the younger generations, and he was always 
in fact, sensitive to that. And he said that what had happened by constantly directing young people simply to older works was that it was it was producing a generation of young people who were not holding their confession with joy and enthusiasm. Matter of fact, he went on to say, this is Herman Bavink writing in 1907, saying that these young people uh, were devoid of joy and enthusiasm as they reflected on their confessional identity as Reformed Christians. And what he was saying is we must counteract that by presenting them with a theology that rises to address the issue of their day, not just the issues of the days of theologians past. And I could not agree with that more. And I think Bavink's theology is so important. And it's, 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 you know, it's, it's a remarkable gift that we have, actually, because in the English-speaking world, it's only in recent years that we actually have the, the privilege of, of being able to read Bavink in English, but I think he is a prophetic voice in the wilderness of our times, if I can use that language, to equip the church with a robust and reformed Christian worldview so that we might rise to the occasion of such pressing times, unprecedented times, and give an answer to everyone who asks us concerning the hope that we have within. Now, of course, the wonderful works of God, about 650 pages, uh, better than the four volumes of the Reformed Dogmatics, but I think you should get them all. I think you should get everything. Matter of fact, he's got two volumes that re- were recently translated on Christian ethics. They're working on a three-volume set. They're up to two volumes right now, but I would say get everything you can by Herman Bavink and read it, learn it, study it, um, and at least interact with it. It will only be for your good. And so I hope that the Christian church will be encouraged uh, as they do so. And that is the program for today. Thank you guys so much for listening in. I'm trusting that you will have a good holiday uh, weekend and trusting that you'll have a great uh, Christmas with your family and New Year. Uh, Listen, Bavinka is going to become more and more important as we face 2023. We're going to have to understand teleology. We're going to have to understand the image of God. We're going to have to understand what is man in relationship to God? What is the nature of God? These things, including eschatology and biblical theology and redemptive history, all of these issues are going to be so important moving forward as we seek to, again, present a biblical apologetic to the modern uh, to the modern culture that we live in so anyway thanks for listening everybody my name is Emilio Ramos of course uh, uh, make sure and listen to our episode next time God bless you